Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today on the podcast, an update on the RUSH exam. That's the rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension. Uh, or maybe it isn't. Maybe that's not what that stands for. We'll talk about that during the episode. Uh, before we get to that, let's do a quick word from our sponsor. Our sponsor today is the Stony Brook Resuscitation Fellowship. This is one year after EM residency where you will learn uh, the parts of critical care that are directly relevant for the resuscitative period, the first 24 hours. So this is for people that want to do a critical care fellowship but never plan to practice in the unit and therefore don't want two years. You won't get a certification, at least yet. I'm trying to get a resus certification made in the United States. We'll see what happens. Um, but uh, you will get so many valuable skills. Uh, you rotate through the ICUs of the shock trauma center, the Stony Brook ICUs. You'll rotate in the resuscitation and acute critical care unit with me and Brian Wright, the fellowship director, and all the other attendings at Stony Brook. Uh, it is an amazing experience. And it also pays well because uh, you will be doing shifts as an ED attending. So this is a very safe way to uh, do your first year out as an ED attending to do resuscitation fellowship and make a reasonable, I mean, not an extraordinary, but a reasonable salary more than fellows would make um, in an ACGME-approved fellowship where they're really bound to the PGY structure for pay. So uh, good pay, great learning, one year. One key thing to understand, this is a clinical resuscitation fellowship. If you want to do another year and get a master's and do research, we, we offer that as well. But the, the main one-year fellowship I'm talking about is a clinical resuscitation. You'll see plenty of resuscitation fellowships listed in the various uh, fellowship uh, listings like ABAM, et cetera. Um, most of those, as far as I know, all of those in the United States, uh, except for ours, maybe uh, one other, uh, they are research resuscitation fellowships. Uh, you will be in the midst of cardiac arrest research or something like that. We are a pure clinical resuscitation fellowship, meaning uh, that entire first year is just pure clinical goodness. I mean, you'll work on a project for publication, but that that's uh, wholly secondary to the fact that you will be totally in the trenches learning additional things that you probably were not taught in EM residency on how to take care of crazy sick patients and will be running the resuscitations and care of crazy sick patients. Um, especially potent for people that have done a three-year program and want to go into academics. It's really tough to get academic jobs uh, coming out of a three-year program these days. They're, they're really uh, high competition, but if you come and do a recess fellowship, uh, you will sell much better. Uh, if you're interested in this, just contact me at the contact link at mcrit.org. So just go to mcrit.org and hit contact and just uh, put in that email that gets pulled up that you want more information about the fellowship. All right, now let's get to the show. So uh, the, this is long due for an update. A lot of my feelings about the Rush exam have changed, have, have evolved. I, I got some new ideas about it. Uh, you know, it's over 12 years old, so this is crazy. And, you know, things are made more confusing because uh, we created the Rush exam. We, we published it. We had it all out there um, on the web. And, and then another group published a similar exam with the same name, baffling, inexplicable, but it leads to people being confused um, when they think they're doing my uh, rush exam in a literature uh, citation. They're actually doing an article for an entirely different exam. It It's annoying. So there's that. Um, and if you want to see the original provenance, uh, I'll, I'll have links to that. But, but the point is, uh, the exam has evolved. And uh, 
I could have talked about it alone, but it's it's always lacking a little bit of the uh, imprimatur of expertise when you don't really have an ultrasound person there to make sure I'm not saying dumb shit because I'm not an ultrasound person. I'm a critical care guy who likes to use ultrasound. So I got a brilliant ultrasound person to help me out. And his name is Jacob Avila. He is the host of the 5-Minute Sono podcast, um, which gives you ultrasound brilliance in five minutes. He is also a co-host of the Ultrasound Podcast. He teaches extensively. He's going to Kentucky soon to take over as their ultrasound director. He is lovely. I've been wanting to get him on the podcast forever. Uh, We actually recorded a episode where I interviewed him on uh, pericardial fusion and tamponade differentiation. On this one, he interviewed me on the Rush exam. And we're doing a simultaneous cast that's going to go up on one of his two podcasts at the same time it's on MCRIT. And the reason I wanted to do it on MCRIT as well, I could have just directed you to his, is I want my audience to listen to his stuff because it's so damn good. So there you go. Check out the show notes for links to 5 Minute Sono and to Ultrasound Podcast. And uh, let's get right to the Rush exam update. Scott. Oh my goodness. I can't believe that I'm talking to you about one of my favorite examinations, the rush exam. I remember learning about this and seeing you at Castle Fest. I think it was in 2014. Yeah. And it was the first time I heard about it. Yeah, no, super fun. Um, I had a question for you. What was the impetus for creating the rush exam? Yeah, when uh, this is about 10 years old now. And at the time, like fast exams were becoming the super, uh, uh, people had finally taken up fast exams. And I was watching this getting done on trauma patients that had absolutely no need, like just totally worthless. They, they were stopping them from going to CT scan to do the fast exam, which is always a complete waste of time. And I'm like, what the hell? Everyone's so excited about this and it's mostly useless. Why are they not doing it on the medical patients where it actually is a diagnostic uncertainty? We have no idea what's going on on these undifferentiated hypotension in the medical patients. And there were, there were groups out there that had already done this. Let me make abundantly clear. The idea of ultrasound for medical shock and hypotension was not a new idea by myself and my friends. Uh, but I, I realized there was no uptake or at least not as much as there should be. And then that's what I'm good at is figuring out, look, there's something really cool here. Let's get it out there to the world. Obviously, that's what I've tried to do in my whole career. And so it needed a rebrand. And so that that's what the Rush exam was about, is making it easy to remember, easy to do, and then giving it something catchy. You know, fast was catchy. That's why people started doing it, is within the name is the speed of the exam itself. It, it you know, uh, people could just say, do a fast, and then it actually became a verb, right? Fast that patient. That's what we were lacking in the medical hypotension world. So, uh, you know, playing off that, it's easy. Rush, you know, same thing. Fast exam um, for medical hypotension. Nice. And uh, so that mnemonic that you made, so the Rush exam, brilliant marketing. The mnemonic also is brilliant marketing. The mnemonic is high map, which is what you want to create in your patient if they didn't have it. Is is that something that, you know, you you came up with uh, kind of on your own? Is there a specific order for that or to just kind of like make sense with a mnemonic? Yeah. Um, the, there's a lot in that mnemonic that doesn't get spoken about. But if you'd uh, indulge me, Jacob, uh, I'd love to talk about the name of Rush for one second. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Talk to me about it. So 
you know, we had to get this published, and they don't publish curse words, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I think this is going to be the next generation of medical education is we could, you know, just publish everything exactly as we speak, but we're not there yet. Um, so Rush was rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension, and that shock was the, supposed to get across to people that it's for patients who are already with low blood pressure, but also for just patients that look crappy. Uh, but what you should start thinking about as the indication for Rush is rapid ultrasound for shittiness and hypotension. <laughs> okay. Because that really gets it across, um, is if you have any patient that just looks like garbage, even if their blood pressure temporarily is okay, do the exam because you will pick up things that you will not otherwise until they may get a CAT scan or way down the road when they're already in cardiac arrest. So any medical patient that looks crappy in my opinion, should get this exam. And so, uh, yes, rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension, but really rapid ultrasound for shittiness and hypotension. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the the vital signs themselves can like lead you astray, right? I mean, you can have a guy that um, is peri shock or to his body is shock, but you might have a you know systolic blood pressure of like I don't know 108 or something like that, and a heart rate of 105, which isn't that shocky by like criteria, but that might be super shocky for that specific patient. One hundred percent like that. Absolutely. And you, you've seen the phenomenon because you've been practicing a while. Uh, for whatever reason, and I, I can't quite put my finger on why this happens pathophysiologically, but patients will compensate until they get to the hospital and then promptly drop dead. So right. these patients may come in with a blood pressure that looks really reasonable and 10 minutes down the road, they're in the toilet at 60 over 40 and uh, you missed your window. Uh, it would have been yeah. really nice to know what was going on before that, that plummet. Yeah. And a, a quick aside, um, I don't know if this is still up on MD Calc, but I use the LLS score uh, very frequently to my residents and in the lecture, like lectures that I give, because uh, it's it's helpful, right? I mean, you just have a bad feeling about a patient. They you know, probably have something going on with them. And that's the patient in which, um, if I'm hearing you correctly, this ultrasound examination would be the best for. Absolutely. LLS of score of one, meaning they look like shit. Uh, yes, do please a rush exam in addition to Right, exactly. Else. And I love I love it. Just uh, one more thing about the LLS because it's just binary. It's either one or it's zero. They either look like shit or they don't, right? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, it's great. Yep. All right. So you, you had gotten to the point of the actual uh, mnemonic we use to remember the sequencing. And, you know, I haven't spoken about this much, but when we were actually creating that, it, it worked out nicely because the high map, the heart, IVC, Morrison's, aorta, and pulmonary is actually order of importance as well. And I know you had spoken at BenFest about, you know, you don't need to do all this on every patient and some of them are more important than others. And there may be some validity to that. I, I might be able to uh, change your mind on that. But uh, I do agree that that portions of it are far more important than others. And it's actually in the order of what matters to my way of thinking. So it kind of works out nicely uh, because if you get curtailed in the midst of it by the patient really decompensating, you got to take your hands off the probe to actually put in a, a line because the nurses can't get an IV and the patient's dying, you will have hit the important ones first. Um, so, you know, and the other thing is even if you do all five main components, this should take you less than 60 seconds. I don't know. When you're watching your residents, Jacob, how long does it take them to do a rush exam? Well, it, it kind of depends. If I have my my super user, 30-year resident, they might get it done in about a minute. But if I have like an off-service intern giving it a shot, like I feel like, you know, they they struggle so much with the basics. It might take them, you know, five, 10 minutes to do all of them if I wasn't there to help them. 
There you go. And I think you put your finger on it, which is this is an exam that's built to be rapid for people that already know every single component of this exam. Because it's it, the exam's stealing from all the other ultrasound modalities we do on an everyday basis. So if you don't know how to do a lung ultrasound, then, then obviously you're not going to be able to do the P in anything less right. than five minutes. But if you know how to do these all, then if you sequence them right, it should take less than 60 seconds. And um, what that comes down to is you're not trying to do complete exams. I think this is a big a misunderstanding of the rush. If you do the heart portion and there's stuff that looks a little weird, this patient needs a true ED or critical care echo. If you do the pulmonary portions and something just doesn't look right, they need a full blue protocol or whatever full lung exam sure. you want. Um, you know, you're doing just the basics to get a gestalt of what's going on with your patient. And then you could follow it as they get stabilized with a full version of whichever modality seems slightly wrong. I see. So kind of like, are you, um, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're, is it kind of like a, like the scout, uh, film on a CT scan? Ooh, I love that. That's, uh, that's okay. a great comparison. Yeah. Um, Wow, you know, people don't use the scouts as much as they should. You get a lot of information from yeah, that full body x-ray that if you're there looking, you can really diagnose a lot of stuff. Yes, that's a beautiful way of saying it. So, so let's start with the heart, right? I mean, are you doing all of the four main views of the heart? Is there some specific order you're going for to diagnose? So you're, you're doing a uh, global function, right? Heart enlargement and pericardial effusion, right? Is basically what you're looking yeah. for with that heart. Yep. Are you and needing to do all four views? Oh, hell no. In fact, you know, what we talk about is you should get a parasternal lung and a four chamber but, you, you know, you have Arntfeldt's Law. Uh, I don't know if he's ever said this with his own name, but Arntfeldt's Law is if you have shitty views in the uh, parasternal or the chest, then you'll have good subxiphoids and vice versa. So really, yeah, you, you just need to do one or the other. And so you could do either the two chest views, four chamber and parasternal long, which will give you your tamponade effusion views. It'll give you global left ventricular function. It'll give you relative chamber size. Um, if you can't get those views in the chest, subxiphoid will give you a reasonable four chamber. And we'll give you enough estimation of left ventricular function to get by at this point. Because again, this is not the summation of your echo. This is a quick, as you say, a scout view just to figure out what that heart's doing. Um, and you get so much information. Uh, and one thing that wasn't in the original publication, but it's been life-saving for my patients uh, in some circumstances is if you see a big right heart, sure, that might knock you down the PE route. But the other thing it should make you scared of is, is this undiagnosed or maybe diagnosed, but you haven't gotten the information because the patient can't tell you pulmonary hypertension without a clot. And that's a patient that knowing this will radically change your vision of whether this patient needs to be intubated right now or not, because you might be looking at this patient, oh, they're in some respiratory stress, we might as well put the tube in. And if you see a big right heart, uh, you should realize that you could easily kill them in the peri-intubation. And you probably should do everything in your power not to intubate them as long as possible until certainly they've been fully resuscitated. And even then, maybe it's not the greatest idea with a huge right heart to intubate at all if you could avoid it. And I think because we've done this in crappy looking patients, even who haven't been hypotensive in our pre-intubation, we will always, uh, as long as we have a millisecond, do a rush exam before intubating a critically ill patient. If we see that big right heart, all of a sudden our entire vision of the next step has changed and we will not put a tube in that patient until everything is exactly right. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you do the heart and then you do the IVC and the IVC is not really like to diagnose them necessarily, but it's to help push you towards a certain type of shock. At least that's how I think about it. What are your views on the IVC? All right. So I fucked up here. Um, and, <laughs> and so this is like the one t- I look back and I'm crip because the nice thing, as you know, from doing podcasts and, and the social media world is you can't pretend you didn't say things. Right. That you said, you know, eight years ago. <laughs> There's a you're, record. You're on record. So uh, I look back on MCRAID and I'm like, how many, you know, horrible errors have I made? And the big category I look back on and I'm like, I can't believe I was saying this 10 years ago, was fluid resuscitation for things like septic shock. And now I was in good company because this was the national vision. We were like mandated by uh, various sepsis societies to go this direction. So, you know, I had people in that sinking ship I was in, but my views on this have totally changed. And so when I originally created the rush, I was trying to just give people the impetus to just give more fluid. So of course I'd say collapsing IVC, give fluid. Um, but my vision is totally different now. Uh, more, more literature has emerged saying we are killing patients by giving lots of fluid to them. So now um, I would say if it, you have a septic shock patient, give your initial fluid bolus if you think they, uh, they need it and can handle it. And then stop, regardless of what the IVC is doing. They don't need more fluid unless they have external losses. You know, if the patient's vomiting or they have massive diarrhea or uh, what have you, sure. But other than that, if, if all the losses are internal, going from their intravascular space to their interstitium and their third spaces, don't replace that. We have better ways of handling it now. So, you know, 20 or 30 cc's if they could handle it and then probably stop. So now IVC becomes just as you say. For me, it's not necessarily an indication to give fluid. It's just an indication of what is going on with their right-sided heart pressures. It's a gestalt. If you see a iron pipe IVC with no variation and a big right heart, it's just an additional piece of information saying, wow, something is going on that's keeping that right heart from ejecting. If you see an IVC that is completely collapsing with respiration, uh, you could say a few things. Uh, chances are good if the clinical uh, milieu matches that, that they probably could take a little fluid. It doesn't mean you have to give it. Um, and the right heart pressures are low. And that's all you could say. It just adds an additional thing to your vision of what's going on with the patient. And don't, don't start measuring. This is key. Uh, you know, people <laughs> are putting calipers on and all this crap. Yeah. Again, this is a less than 60-second exam. If you want to go back and do an IVC exam later on, knock yourself out. You could add in portal vein pulsatility and looking at the renal vasculature and what have you. That's a, it should be another named exam of uh, over-fluid uh, administration. Um, you know, my friend um, Philippe Rolla is talking about this a lot. And, you know, I'm sure they'll name it at some point. But that's not the rush. No calipers. Just right. look at the IVC for like two breaths and that's it. Gotcha. Um, so the next step would be Morrison's pouch, which is basically doing the fast exam for the belly, right? And I'm thinking uh, you're looking for a uh, ruptured AAA, maybe, although those guys usually die in the field anyways, uh, maybe a ruptured ectopic, ruptured bowel, and um, that's all I got. Yeah, well, a few things on that. You know, this was, uh, I, I had my colleagues when we started the Rush exam, because I'm, I'm a critical care guy that uses ultrasound. And then we have a lot of ultrasound guys that use critical care. So my friend, uh, Danny Duque and Brett Nelson, uh, we worked on the Rush exam and we fought about this point. And so I'm going to just go off the reservation. I'm going to disagree with the, the original founders of this exam and say, you don't need a fast exam. That's why mine's less than 60 seconds, even though we reported it as two minutes. Um, I just do Morrison's. And I put them in Trendelenburg, you know, just tilt the bed down a little bit. And I look for the liver tip. 
And I will make the statement, and someone could prove me wrong, but I don't think they ever will, that you will never find a patient with significant intra-abdominal blood or fluid that does not have a positive Morrison's in Trendelenburg at the liver tip. I've never seen it. I see a lot of these patients. I look for this. I've never found the splenorenal or bladder view to tell me any information that a Trendelenburg Morrison's at the liver tip has not revealed. Yeah, I, I might actually, I mean, not, I might, I actually agree with you. Um, will you miss a little bit of intra-abdominal free fluid? Absolutely. But are you likely to miss somebody that's in shock or has a LLS score of one with no fluid in their right upper quadrant? Yeah. I mean, of course that makes sense. I've never seen a sick patient not have fluid in the right upper quadrant, you know, when, yep. when the sickness is due to fluid. Absolutely. And if you put them in Trendelenburg, then it even changes the fact that there may be uh, geographically located fluid that you would miss when the patient is flat. And there was one study on this showing an increased sensitivity of Morrison's when they're in Trendelenburg. And so this is all I do. And again, if you want to do a full abdominal survey, knock yourself out, ain't part of the rush exam. So uh, this is how you get down to less than 60 seconds, just one shot. And just as you say, you're looking for free fluid and don't assume it's blood in a medical patient. It could be ascites. If there's a lot of free fluid, the pro move is to put them in a position where you could find a pocket and just stick a fine gauge needle in there and see wow, it's clear fluid or it's blood. And that will radically change your entire vision of what has to happen with this patient. So are you doing like a, in like a, you know, skinny patient, are you doing like a, just an IV, like an 18 gauge IV and putting in there? What, not what even. catheter are you using? Oh, not even putting a catheter in. I'm just putting a syringe, a 22 gauge, one and a half inch needle. And uh, just like you do a, a peritoneal tap on a cirrhotic patient. But if you could find a pocket, you know, sit them up in whatever position you like. Um, just look at the fluid. It will change everything rather than having to take this uh, patient who like is a, just turns out to be ascites. I mean, I'm not talking like a little bit of fluid. I'm talking about right, right. you throw the probe on, there's a belly full of something. I want to know what that something is before the 40 minutes when I get the CT results uh, mm -hmm. because it's going to change a whole bunch of things knowing there's a belly full of blood. Yeah, sweet. Um, so the next one would be the aorta. Um, how often have you seen patients that are alive in your emergency department with um, abnormalities in their aorta that you can directly attribute to the aorta as a cause of their sickness. This is the only surprising thing I had heard you say during that BenFest review. I see this, I mean, not all the time because these are not, but I see this enough to make this very worthwhile. Um, you know, most of these patients will be complaining of some form of vague abdominal pain or flank pain, but we see a lot of uh, patients we catch before they actually have a full rupture. And some of them have a little bit of free fluid. They had a tiny rupture and some of them don't. And you're just catching them at the point where the walls have gotten so large that now they're complaining of pain syndromes, um, which is why, again, shittiness is, may precede the hypotension. Uh, but yeah, we've seen hypotensive patients that we've caught by this as well. And this is uh, one of the structures of our aortic alert in our hospital is uh, if we see an enormous aorta prior to CT scan, then we'll get the entire ball rolling. And that might be the difference between this patient getting to the OR before code or after. So yeah, it, it, enough to make it worthwhile. But but then we, we you know, you folks were talking about, well, what about the 22-year-old? They obviously don't need the aorta views. And you're right. They probably, or I could say pretty definitively, don't have a triple A. But what they have had and what we've caught if you go with the shittiness or even sometimes the hypotension is you will pick up dissections on these patients. And so you do the sub view of the aorta 
and there's a flap sitting there in the aorta. That is radical in terms of, you know, it's because this is such a protean disease in terms of its presentation. Um, and they can be hypotensive uh, for a number of reasons. It could just be that the cuff is on the arm that the dissection flap is actually blocking off. So if you go with shittiness or hypotension to do the uh, aorta views, even on young people, you sometimes will be surprised by what you pick up if you're looking not just for size, but also what's filling in that aortic nice black circle. Um, if there's a flap there, that should uh, push you uh, towards certain diagnoses that could kill these patients. Yeah, that's fair enough. And the aorta in all reality is not that hard to see on the majority of patients. Yep. You can at least get, you know, the just infrarenal portion of it, which is the part of the aorta that's most likely to be diseased, at least as far as the AAA goes. Yep. Um, that was, that's got to add what, 15 seconds max to your examination time? Yeah. And on that? the 20 year old, I just throw it subdiphoid. And honestly, I don't do the other three aorta views because I'm not worried about enlargement. I just want to know, uh, is there going to be a type A or type B dissection? Type A being the really important one at this point. And you will find that if you're going to find it on an easy ultrasound on the subxiphoid view. The other three are probably functionally irrelevant. Brilliant. Now, the last part is my favorite part of like ultrasound in general. It's a pulmonary examination. And I could spend, you know, 30 minutes examining every single rib space in a patient because I like it that much. When you are doing the rush exam, what exactly are you looking for? Yeah. So this is so funny because um, the speaker you had at BenFest, this is, was her favorite. She starts with this. This is virtually useless for me, which is why I put it so far down the end for shittiness and hypotension. Look, I am a avid blue protocol guy. And if so, if I want to know why my patient has dyspnea, I'm all over it. Let's, let's look at every part of that lung. Let's do a 10 ex space exam. No worries. I'm, I'm game. Let's do it. It's not part of the rush. The rush is uh, for me, basically just the subclavicular views. And I'm just looking, is there a pneumothorax that I'm missing? Especially if the patient had a previous procedure and now they're decompensating in a department after someone decided to do a subclavian. Um, and, and just the gestalt of, are they so filled with interstitial edema that it's made it up to their anterior chest? Because that's, that's a valuable piece of information, right? Um, that goes along with cardiogenic shock. It tells me um, if they are an A-line pattern and I have a big uh, right heart, okay, maybe I'm going further down the idea of this being a patient with pulmonary embolism. It's just that good old gestalt. If this got left out, very little would be lost. It's very rare to find the tension pneumothorax as the cause of hypotension in a patient who's not intubated. Uh, some would say virtually impossible. Um, it's only the intubated patients that get hypotensive, which is why it's the end of the high map. And I love, love, love lung ultrasound, but it's not really crucial for the rush exam. And I'm definitely not making my fluid choices about whether or not the patient has B-lines. That is irrelevant to me. They might have B-lines from SIRS, um, changes in their lungs or pneumonia. They might have absent B-lines, even though they may very well be hurt by fluids. So this is, again, a paradigm shift in my practice. I don't care about the lungs that much for fluid resuscitation. Right. Um, well, what about uh, looking for hemothorax or a pleural effusion? Have you ever found that to be helpful? That I will put in the category of the blue. And okay. so if the patient's having decreased SATs or, um, or dyspnea, then absolutely we will do those views. 
uh, you know, on a trauma patient, hemothorax is a wonderful thing. That's one of the benefits of FAST that actually is helpful, um, especially when you're looking what cavity are they bleeding in, what cavity they're bleeding in. Not as helpful. We put it in the original um, rush because if you're going to do the whole FAST, you might as well look up in the chest. But since I'm only doing Morrison's, I'd only be looking at one of the uh, sides of the lung. So yeah, you, you knock yourself out. You know, Usually you get it as a bonus just by the top portion of the kidney, but I don't care that much for the rush. Um, and again, I will add on the additional ultrasounds. And the only thing that, uh, you, you have is the supplementary views, you know, cause it's high map ED with ED only being done if other things in the rush triggered you to do them. So that's E for ectopic where you could actually search in a young childbearing age female, especially if you had a rapid pregnancy test that's already positive And now you have some free food in the belly, you know, if just for funsies, you could actually prove wow, look, there's the ectopic sitting there. And then that's just for joy factor. Because if you have a young woman of childbearing age with free fluid and a positive pregnancy exam, they're an ectopic until they're not. So it doesn't right. really matter. And then the D actually is helpful. So if you have a, a big right heart and everything else going along with uh, potential pulmonary embolism, the patient's crapping out and you think they may die before you get them to CT scan. Um, and then you're like, should I give the lytics? Should I not give the lytics? If you find the DVT, I think that pushes you over the edge. What do you think about that, Jacob? Oh, I agree with you 100%. I, uh, the ectopic thing is, is huge, and I agree with you on, on that. And uh, I've actually done a fair bit of research on DVTs and PEs. It's one of the kind of non-ultrasoundish things that I'm super passionate about. Um, and if you have somebody that you have a clinical suspicion um, of a PE and you find a DVD, it has a DVT, it has a positive likelihood ratio of like, I think it was 13 or 14, yeah, well, there the diagnosis know. of PE. That's one study, but it was still high enough to make me think like, hey, I think he's got it. He's got a, you know, huge DVT in his entire leg. I'm much more likely to push lytics on this arresting or periosting patient um, if I find that for sure. And then if I don't find it and I, I think there's a high suspicion, that doesn't say they don't have it. Right. But I use it more for its positive likelihood ratio and specificity rather than its sensitivity or negative likelihood ratio. Totally agree. Okay, folks, there you go. A rush update. I'm super curious to hear what you think, how you've been using this, whether you totally disagree with any of my various uh, points about ultrasound use. And uh, I, I look forward to hearing from you. So remember, if you are a soon-to-graduate EM resident in the United States, it's got to be U.S. people. Uh, otherwise, we... Well, actually, I guess anyone could do it, but we'd have to pay you a lot less if you were not able to work as a U.S. ED attending. If you're interested in the Resuscitation Fellowship at Stony Brook, I think you'd have a great time for the year. Um, just contact me at mcrit.org slash contact, or just go to mcrit.org and hit the contact link. Scott Weingart for the MCRIT podcast saying bye-bye.